This is Ben Weingarten for Encounter Books, and today I'm joined by Leon Cass, author of the new book, Leading a Worthy Life, Finding Meaning in Modern Times. Mr. Cass is the Madden Jewett Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and Professor Emeritus in the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago. He spent his career studying both the good of the body and the good of the mind and soul, and this volume represents the distillation of his life's efforts. So, Mr. Cass, on a personal level, I thank you for sharing it, and and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Ben, for having me, and uh, you can call me Leon. All right, will do, and I should let our audience know, in the book, you recommend returning to the Mr. and Mrs. titles, something that I agree with. But in any event, uh, for the purposes of this conversation, I will refer to you by your first name. So, Leon, tell us, what is a worthy life? Define it for us. Well, it's, I think, not easy to define in simple terms, but I think um, uh, the heart of it is that it is uh, a life that makes sense, a life of meaning. Uh, it is a life that um, can be had through meaningful and fulfilling work, through deep love, family relations and friendship through the attainment of excellence in one important human domain or another and the practice of a dignified humanity. It can be attained through the search of understanding and wisdom, a significant place in our communities, an opportunity to serve, and a relationship to something higher or beyond. There are multiple paths to multiple forms of a worthy life. But if I had to sum it up, I would say that um, all of these have in common uh, the the notion that uh, when life is finished, one could say to oneself, uh, I have made good use of the gift of the time allotted me, uh, a gift that I did not get by virtue of merit but that I have not squandered this time, I've put it to good use, and I have fulfilled one of the various possible uh, uh, opportunities for human flourishing, human service, and devotion. In this book, you suggest that many people today are not living worthy lives, lives, but yearn to, or they should yearn to. And you write, and I'll quote here, Today we are super competent when it comes to efficiency, utility, speed, convenience, and getting ahead in the world, but we are at a loss concerning what it's all for. This lack of cultural and moral confidence about what makes a life worth living is perhaps the deepest curse of living in our interesting time. Unquote. Prior generations always lament that the present society is worse or deficient in some way relative to the society that preceded it. Why in this era today are things really different? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not uh, immune to the suspicion, even a self-suspicion, that uh, um, these may be the musings of a nostalgic and grumpy old man, but I don't think so. Um, and I think the real difference is, and by the way, I would correct one thing that you said. I think there are lots of people who are living worthy lives, What's different is that the dominant culture has lost its, uh, its dominance in a way and lost its confidence about its ability to teach, especially the young, uh, how to get on a path toward living a worthy life and even what a worthy life means. 
Um, this is really the difference, and it's taken place largely in my lifetime. Uh, young people uh, during my growing up uh, had certain encouragement and paths that led to uh, to marriage. Uh, not exactly the courtship of my parents and grandparents' generations, but there were certain kinds of forms that had marriage as its goal no longer. In the universities, the true, the good, and the beautiful uh, had um, strong defenders, and universities spoke uh, proudly about that they were in the business of seeking the truth. Uh, you won't find a single uh, university leader today who says that the pursuit of the truth is the business of our university. We're in the business of knowledge creation. We're preparing people for, uh, uh, to have a place in the new economy, et cetera, et cetera. And with respect to um, the love of country, with respect to the love of wisdom, uh, the, there's a kind of higher cynicism uh, in the culture as a whole. So um, it's, it, it's that we do not have um, uh, we, the elite and others who live a worthy life uh, do not have any encouragement from the general culture. And to put it in Charles Murray's words, um, we do not preach what we practice. And uh, this is, I think, uh, a big change, and it's occurred really over the course of my lifetime. So that young people, uh, I think in my experience uh, teaching uh, 35 years in the University of Chicago, they still have the same aspirations as young people have always had. And uh, despite the massive changes uh, in our common life and a glut of distracting, addicting, uh, isolating amusements, a debased popular culture, nevertheless, uh, the human soul in these young people still wants what it always wants. And so that the task is to... Um, try to give voice to those aspirations and to encourage, encourage them. Uh, and uh, that's what these essays in their variety are trying to do. Is there a historical precedent based upon your study of these matters for a society like ours that, for example, has in many ways, at least among the elite, although as you noted, in their own lives, they continue to kind of foster and value these sorts of values and principles, rejects the Judeo-Christian and classical liberal principles on which Western civilization and in general in America in particular have flourished, that repudiates these core principles or no longer suggests that those are the superior principles and then ultimately it winds up re-embracing them over time. Um. I don't, I don't really know. I mean, there have been, there have been periods uh, in in our past where uh, there was a certain falling away, let us say, from the religious traditions, and then there were several great awakenings in American history, uh, in which there was a, some some return. And uh, it's an open question whether there is another great awakening in religious terms, in the American future. I mean, the coming of uh, the Depression and the Second World War put an end to a uh, kind of uh, age of uh, uh, 
of, of hedonism and shallow attachments. Uh, and then uh, life all of a sudden became very serious. And uh, also um, new opportunities opened up for people who had been marginalized and uh, at the bottom in the immediate post-war period. I'm one of the beneficiaries uh, of that. I and my contemporaries uh, were given an opportunity to make something of themselves through education and uh, and uh, working hard to uh, fulfill our aspirations. I do think that um, uh, if you're just talking about, I mean, there, there have been societies in the past that have undergone sort of cultural uh, decline and despair. Um, the one I refer to in the introduction to my book is ancient Athens, which, like the United States, sort of stumbled into an empire after the uh, Persian War. And um, then uh, after the war with Sparta, things began to unravel. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, there was the, the, the old pieties were, uh, were under attack. They had their own intellectuals, sophists they were known. I, the good translation of sophist would be public intellectual or law professor. Um, and they ran around mocking the old pieties and patriotism and the gods and so on. Um, and uh, Athens went down the drain, though uh, it turns out that the time of chaos was also a time of great intellectual and personal renewal, primarily through the person of Socrates and his uh, uh, divine student, Plato, who memorialized his conversations, in which, uh, um, in the absence of compelling cultural answers to the good life, the question of how to live becomes a question, and many of the best young people rallied around uh, Socrates and took up his quest, some living better than they might otherwise have done, others winding up uh, rascals and scoundrels. Um, that's a long way off, and that's not... Uh, Western civilization informed by uh, the Judeo-Christian ethic and, and, and religion, as well as by um, uh, philosophy and, uh, and, and the moral virtues. I don't know that there is, I mean, there are examples in the 20th century of um, more or less liberal, enlightened Societies gone bad. Germany would be the the great example, and um, and a certain rejection of the moral tradition there. Um, uh, but I don't know that in the in in the in the bulk of the of, of liberal Western Christendom, um, there's been anything like a society that um, surrendered its patrimony and uh, live to sing a happy song. Naturally, one of the starting points of your book is a focus on the importance of family and interpersonal relations. And you write, and I quote, real reform in the direction of sanity would require a restoration of cultural gravity about sex, marriage, and the life cycle, unquote. What has been lost when it comes to sex, marriage, and the life cycle? Um several things. Uh, I mean, the, the history of 
how we got to this point is overdetermined. And people who want to claim that this is all the result of the decadent 60s or the revolutionary 60s uh, need to think more deeply. Um, a certain kind of emphasis on individuality and individual rights, uh, quite apart from the 60s, leads to a kind of fraying of the notion of dependence uh, and the notion of the primacy of two rather than one, or two and a multitude of children rather than me myself fulfilling my own promise. Uh, but um, I think that uh, uh, technology has played a, a significant role in this. I mean, effective contraception, especially the pill, has in a way made it possible for sex to be severed not only from its procreative intention and ever-present possibility, but therefore from its gravity. I mean, young people today will give their bodies but not their hearts, and hooking up is easy, and getting to know you comes after the fact if it comes at all. That would have been, I think, unheard of for people who understood that sex was intimately connected with Eros, that Eros had strivings beyond the scratching of the sexual urge, that it was generative of children, that it was the spur to rise uh, in terms of deed and thought and poetry and song. Um, and we have, um, we've in a way, um, reduced sex really to uh, something largely trivial, immediate, and severed from anything really high. Um, we have uh, sex education, which teaches safe sex primarily to prevent the unwanted diseases of uh, venereal diseases or sexually transmitted diseases and the so-called disease because unwanted of pregnancy. But sex education really is right. The higher sex education, I have a chapter in the book on this, is really the education of the heart and the education of the imagination and the leading of the soul upward uh, in search of a soulmate and the higher possibilities that come with it. Um, we've had the treatment, partly thanks to the feminist movement, of the transformation of speech about sex in terms of power. Uh, and that uh, all of everything connected with sexuality in its deeper sense is delicate. There's play in it. There's possibility of shame and embarrassment and loss and joy and spontaneity. And here there's an attempt to see everything in terms of power relations and on the one hand, to remove all restraint, and now, especially with the, I think, rather welcome calling out of the male predators, also a kind of new prudishness that doesn't seek to restore uh, the old mores or a sense of the delicacy of things, but in fact, still thinking about these things in terms of power, insists that what we have to do is provide very explicit rules and guidelines to make sure that all of this is simply under the will. Well, um, the whole realm of Eros is a kind of reminder that um, we are in the grip of powers and directions 
that are not the product of our own will. And we have to learn how to live with those powers in their glory and their danger. But it's not handled, uh, I think, under the concepts that are in the saddle today. Um, yeah, I guess that for openers, um, those would be part of what I think afflicts us. And um, I don't know that there's going that there's any going back to something like female modesty and male gentlemanliness in these matters. Uh, the um, the internet and the internet matchmaking has introduced a certain salutary distance uh, in which it makes it somehow possible in the best case for people to get to know each other um, uh, before things get sticky. But uh, that's a technological remedy for certain deformations of previous technological innovations. And there really is no substitute for being face-to-face in synchronous time, risking um, everything in intimate speech, uh, and trying to be to your prospective beloved uh, what you hope to be to yourself and vice versa. So, I mean, there there are opportunities, but it would take large cultural changes to reverse the uh, erosions that I have seen in my lifetime. You have a somewhat more optimistic perception of college students than probably many of our listeners, and granting that those students who you've taught represent a self-selecting group, perhaps not representative of the entire population, but you seem to have had at least some limited success in terms of putting forth the perspective that you just put forth and seeing college students respond to it positively over time. How do how do you influence students? Are there any sorts of things, ideas that can be presented of, and that have effectively shattered kind of students' preconceived notions or biases going into your classroom? Yeah, look, and I'll give you an example in a moment, but um, uh, it's very uncool for... Never mind. It's very uncool for young people, uh, and they take their cues in part from the fact that irony is everywhere, the coin of the realm. It's very uncool for them to own up to the fact that they really have longings, that they really would like to meet someone with whom to make a life, that they really would like to do something significant in the world. It's much better to hide behind a certain certain sort of cynical views that, among other things, protect them against disappointment. And um, uh, and this I learned largely from my late wife, who's also taught with me and taught classes successfully at Chicago for 34 years. Um, uh, she says, and I think she's right, she's never met a student who didn't want to be taken seriously as himself or herself. She'd never met a student who wasn't interested in having real friends as opposed to the Facebook variety. Um, and, uh, and our experience has always been that if you, put, if you create a, <laughs> a safe space uh, in this sense, a space which is safe for people to speak really honestly, 
not about what's on the tip of their tongue, but what might be in the deeper recesses of their hearts and minds. And you, um, and you make room for any opinion honestly offered to be taken seriously, not just by you as a teacher, but insist that it be taken seriously by everybody in the room. And you then put good books before the student, which you then don't lecture about, but you um, go through it on the assumption that this book might have something to teach you about the most important things for your own life that you don't even know about and you might not know about if you don't read this book as if it could teach you something. Uh, it's been, I think, I've never had a class in which the majority of the students didn't rise to the occasion. And I'll give you an example from a class that uh, my late wife, Amy, and I did on, uh, on courtship and marriage. Um, we put together an anthology, wing to wing, or to or, reading on courting and marrying, in a way prompted by our discovery that the students that we had taught now well into their late 30s, uh, eager to get married but not having a clue, it was then that we discovered that there were really no cultural forms leading in this direction, so we thought we would try to remedy this by putting together some readings that people could read. And then to test the proposition, we offered a course for undergraduates, 25 students in a seminar. Uh, second day of class, uh, the following opinions were voiced. The idea of being married to the same woman for 25 years is preposterous, young man young woman, English major, um, we know that we're not supposed to get married until we're at least 28. So all of our relationships with men are supposed to be transient and impermanent. Another young woman, um, casual sex with men is a great blessing because it gets the sex out of the way so that you can become friends with boys or men uh, in a way it was never possible before. And I remember going home that night and told my wife, um, these people are from Mars. I'm not going back in there. She says, don't worry. We'll do what we always do. You'll see. And the, core of the, the readings included um, the Garden of Eden story, uh, Ares and Aphrodite from uh, the tale in the Odyssey, Jacob meets Rachel at the well, various other uh, essays on our current situation, and eventually various sample courtships, uh, Darcy and Elizabeth from Pride and Prejudice, Emil and Sophie from Rousseau's Emil, Rosalind, uh, Orlando and Rosalind from uh, As You Like It. Uh, and then um, we did this little colloquy by er from, uh, written by Erasmus, simply called Courtship, on Courtship, uh, 1530-something, if I'm not making it up. And we had them enact the courtship in which a young man who's in love with love and lusting for this young woman is put in through a dialogue with her through his paces so that she forces him to make the argument for marriage rather than an affair. Um, and we had the students enact each of the two parts. We'd pause and have them comment on what's going on. And then at the end of the discussion, towards the end, um, where he, she finally persuades him to seek marriage, and she sends him off to her parents to seek their blessing. Erasmus, by the way, is proposing this as a substitute for arranged marriage. This was novel 
to be worked out by the young couple and then to get the parental blessings. Um, And the young man is about to go off, and he says to her, so before I go, would you give me a little token of your affection, a kiss at least? And she says to him coyly, "Um, would you like me to bestow my kisses on others? And he says, no, I want you to save them all for me. She says, well, then I'll save them for you. Here's a little sachet, and let's shake hands. And we were sure we'd really lost them here. Up until this point, they were playing along. They saw the power of what was going on. And my good wife had the genius to say to this class, so what's a kiss? And this same group which had voiced these barbaric opinions at the beginning said as follows in short order, a kiss is the most erotic thing imaginable. A kiss is a sharing of the breath, which is the spirit. A kiss is a promise. And a kiss is a small consummation. None of these things did they hear from us. And to tell the truth, if forced to answer under those circumstances, I couldn't have matched it. And this was, this was the best proof anybody ever needs. There are things sleeping in the souls of young people which if you, if you recognize that they're there and you talk to them as if they are better than they think they are, um, they will try to prove you right. And more often than not, they succeed. The problem in the universities, yeah, the students come from a debased culture, and now they, you know, their attention spans are limited. You don't have to quiet a class at the beginning uh, and tell them to stop talking to themselves because none of them are talking to themselves. They're each of them on their own private phone somewhere else. Uh, but um, that, I think, is still superficial. And the problem in the universities is not largely with the students. It's with the curriculum and with the faculty. And if the universities were doing their job and if they were encouraging the students to think about what their life means and what they want out of life and to take seriously the treasuries that our tradition has passed us to help us think about those things, the students would rise to the occasion and they wouldn't be so vulnerable to all of this political idiocy which now they're seduced by and which takes the place of real learning. Their tuition is being thrown down the drain. When you speak of a debased culture, one manifestation of this, in my view, and, and you can tell me if you disagree, is the idea that today society, in some respects, celebrates failure. And maybe that's a manifestation of our sort of self-loathing and our love of our self-loathing. But you write about the importance of human flourishing and excellence. How do you cultivate a love of excellence? And how do we get people to pursue, once again, a flourishing life? Well, look, um, uh, some kind of excellent activity, and I don't mean by that necessarily as measured by external success of a full curriculum vita and a six-figure uh, income, but uh, an activity, activities in which uh, the human powers are exercised fully and at a high level is 
for many people the heart of what it means to live a meaningful life. And one sees it. I mean, one sees it in craftsmen and artisans. One sees it in, uh, in the gifted teachers of, in secondary schools and primary schools. One sees it in nurses and in doctors, in, in policemen and firefighters, people who um, are committed to their work and do a really good job are fulfilled in that work. Um, and I don't think it's true that, I mean, it's true that we have tended um, to uh, elevate victims, uh, partly as a way of not having people who come up on the short end uh, of the stick uh, feel um, that they don't belong in the society at all. And uh, we've adopted a kind of false view of cultivating self-esteem, which is not tied to anything estimable. But I do think there are lots of pockets of the pursuit of excellence. We just don't have a lot of talk about it. Um, the, there is an essay in the book which I'm very fond of. It's written with my young friend Eric Cohen uh, called For the Love of the Game, which is all about sports. Uh, which is a domain in which uh, uh, the pursuit of excellence is uh, still very much in evidence and in which the culture as a whole esteems it. So there, too, there has been a corruption um, in, uh, in which victory means everything. The highlight reel uh, substitutes for connoisseurship of the whole game um, and in which money distorts absolutely everything. And nevertheless, um, there are people who play their entire life out in public, um, and they play with, with uh, a full heart and everything that they have. They train, um, they match themselves up against the best that can be offered against them, and they do it in broad daylight, um, and they shine or they fall. And uh, we respond to this. Um, uh, that we don't have comparable support. Uh, and, and by the way, one sees something of this in the way in which one recruits for the armed forces. And there is an appeal um, to be all you can be and uh, the promise of some kind of fulfillment of your possibility through service. So it's not the case. It's not the case that these things don't exist. It's that we have, as a culture, lost the courage to talk about the importance of the pursuit of excellence and that esteem should somehow be earned rather than just granted. Um, one sees, look, I, mean, I keep interrupting myself, one sees it in the cultivation of, 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 of music and the children who are really talented um, in, in classical music, they know the difference between uh, excellence and not, and they devote themselves to it and are intrinsically rewarded by learning how to do it really well. Um, it's just that, uh, once again, we, we don't speak properly about these things. And, um, uh, and, and what we need, really, is a rather diversified view of the excellences that in fact command respect 
it's not true that everybody ought to go to a four-year college and get credentialed rather than pursue things that they're good at, that they would be fulfilled at, and that, in fact, um, uh, at which they could be excellent. So I I think um, we need to recover the praise of excellence, its recognition in many areas of our life, and the understanding that excellent activity for its own sake is the heart of a flourishing life. It's not a means to the praise of the money or the status, but to be at work doing something as well as it can is really um, what what it means to thrive. And uh, we just have lost our ability to talk about it. Sometimes in the pursuit of excellence, and I'm thinking here in the physical realm like in sports, people seek to cheat the system as that essay that you reference from Eric Cohen alludes to. And you write about the advances in biotechnology, people seeking out better bodies, people seeking out, trying to correct for quote-unquote defects, real or imagined, through the use of science. What's the right way to think about balancing or harmonizing medical advances on the one hand and ethical and moral concerns on the other? Well, this has been the, one of the two major foci of my professional life, the other being teaching young people using the great books and great questions. Um, biotechnology is uh, entering its adulthood, um, and uh, there are wonderful new innovations that will help, help restore uh, deficiencies, somatic and psychic, and we should simply welcome these things. Um, uh, It would be wonderful if uh, all people could get a fair shot at a good life, not impaired in body or in mind or or in heart. Um, The trouble is that uh, the same innovations also hold out the promise of going on beyond the healing of disease to so-called enhancements. Uh, And of course, we would welcome the enhancement that would enable the deaf to hear and the blind to see uh, and to correct, say, the muscle weaknesses of someone born with muscular dystrophy. But we're now on the threshold of innovations that will, um, as you say, uh, offer us um, superior performance, uh, better children uh, genetically and uh, neurologically improved, uh, ageless bodies, and pharmacologically assisted happy souls. And here, uh, and there are people um, very vocal uh, about it, promising what they call a post-human future, uh, part of it coming through biotechnology, partly through artificial intelligence and computer human interfacing Um, and uh, I find that prospect uh, revolting Um, I would not entrust uh, the product of eons of evolution uh, to be revised by the half-baked thoughts of some people who think they know what a better version of a human being or a non-human version of a human being would be and that we should trade everything that 
has been the accumulated understanding of a rich human life for the promise of some man-machine hybrid or of people who will get their pleasures out of a bottle uh, or who will have the life expectancy so prolonged that uh, you will have extended time, but the meaning of any part of it will be diminished. Uh, Part of the trouble is these new devices begin to interfere with what it means to be the author of your own activities. And the steroids in baseball are just the tip of the iceberg of what it would mean if people became the creatures of their chemists. Uh, They would still, they they would in some ways still be the performer of a deed that that the uh, um, record-breaking fans will applaud but it will not flow from the deep structure of their own being and their own character. And they will be increasingly in a way like, uh, like horses bred for the track. Um, And the other big difference is that the desire to do away with our limitations and deficiencies uh, unbeknownst to the scientists is a will in the end undercut the ground of our aspiration. As Wallace Stevens put it, um, uh, not to have is the beginning of desire. It's lack, it's insufficiency, which is the basis of longing. And, um, if, uh, and, and, and if one gets one's satisfaction, not from activities, but from pharmaco- pharmacologically induced hedonic states, uh, we will have uh, come even closer to that very prophetic vision of the brave new world Aldous Huxley gave us in the 18, in the 1930s, um, where uh, we have uh, creatures of human shape but of stunted humanity. They don't read, write, love, govern themselves. There's no science. There's no art. There's no poetry. Um, all pleasures are chemically induced. And it is, uh, it is a gravely dehumanized society made possible by science, which came into being in order to do away with sickness, grief, sorrow, war, poverty. It had the humanitarian solution, but at the cost of our humanity. And if we're not careful, the biological revolution can take us there, not by some omnicompetent state, but on the basis of personal free choice. You conclude your book with a discussion of three texts or three portions of texts, one representing the philosophical in the Nicomachean Ethics, another representing the religious in or theological in the Ten Commandments, and lastly, the practical or political in the Gettysburg Address. So I wanted to ask one question regarding each of these three works. First, with respect to the Nicomachean Ethics, Can you explain how that work serves as the antidote to moral relativism? Because so much of the rot in our culture and society can be attributed to that malady of belief. Yeah, um, well, there's uh, one place in it which uh, Aristotle, in a way, raises very near the beginning of the book the question of cultural relativity, that... uh, um, fire burns the same here and in Persia, but what men say is just varies from place to place, uh, so that people think that the noble and the just exist just by human agreement and not by nature. 
And the whole book is, in a way, an attempt to address that question, not by logical argument, but by showing. And through books, uh, the second half of book three and all of book four, Aristotle polishes off men of superior moral character, uh, having uh, ten virtues. And he polishes them off, describes them not in the way his own culture would do, but perfects that description, and then puts them up before you in between uh, a vice of excess and a vice of deficiency. And basically he's saying to you, look, don't you see that this is more beautiful, more fine, more splendid than the alternatives? Courage, moderation, generosity, uh, magnificence, greatness of soul, gentleness, uh, friendliness, truthfulness, wit. Um, and he shows you these things, and you look at it, and you say, and, and then you can find good examples of out of your own life, and you see, you know, um, these things really are beautiful forms of our humanity. And maybe you can't give a proof, a logical proof it, but um, somebody who doesn't see the beauty of these things you would want to say is the moral equivalent of red-green colorblind. Um, so that's, that's a kind of showing, um, and it's been very effective in my classes. We go through the Museum of the Virtues, and people come out saying they've seen a damn good show. You provide an exegesis of the Ten Commandments. Can you sort of provide us with a synopsis of your takeaway about the real importance of the Decalogue? <laughs> I know that's a that's somewhat of a, a loaded question. It, it, it isn't really uh, worthy of a of an index card response. But yeah, no, look, um, uh, the. I have a reading of the of the Ten Commandments, in which um, I make a lot out of the two of those commandments that are positive. Uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, that you and uh, honor your father and mother, that your days may be long upon the earth that the Lord your God has given you. All the other commandments are put in the negative, and I make the argument that it is through these two commandments that we have a teaching for a truly humanistic politics, that the day of rest is a way of remembering that um, it's not a Hobbesian world here, but that we stand in the world grateful for the gifts of our life and of the bounty of the earth that enables our life to sustain itself, and that we, in a way, can adopt the stand of the Creator uh, who also stood down on the seventh day and looked at the hole that he had made and hallowed a day of time out of time, a day not of getting and spending and grasping all you can, but a day for appreciation and gratitude, um, and a day on which even the maidservants and the manservants of the house rest. Whatever the social distinctions, everyone, including the animals, uh, are given a day off in commemoration of the creation and our honored place in it. Um, and then honor your father and mother is a way, uh, and, and the first is in a way universal. Everybody uh, can in a way be grateful to the creator for the goodness of the whole and our place in it. 
but each of us has a special obligation to those uh, who are responsible for our own particular being in the world, responsible for our rearing, um, and uh, and who teach us, uh, who launch us in life with a kind of teaching that enables us to aspire to a flourishing life. And it is the teaching on honor your father and mother, which introduces the kind of bulwark against incest and various other sexual wildnesses which um, wash out the special high standing of the creature made in God's image. So I treat the, uh, the Sabbath teaching as anti-Egypt, anti the technological project to master nature and conquer death, which has come back in modern technological society. And honor your father and mother is the bulwark against the, uh, all the sexual perversions that were the ways of the Canaanites and to some extent also the Egyptians. Uh, so against hyper-rationalism and against a kind of irrational uh, Dionysiac element, uh, these two poles, always poles of human possibility, were countered um, in the world for the first time by the teaching given in Sinai, um, celebrated in the West up to the present age, and God willing, for the future. Lastly, what is the relevance of the Gettysburg Address to leading a worthy life? Um, we who are blessed to live in the United States with all of its warts and its worries about its future, and uh, it's not a perfect society by any means, but this is a society that was singularly brought into being around an idea, an idea of uh, radical human equality in the Declaration of Independence, an equality of God-given rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, there was a flaw in the founding in which some amongst us were um, hideously denied those rights, and the nation fought a war to vindicate that founding and those principles. And the speech of Abraham Lincoln at Gettysburg to dedicate the cemetery to the Union dead is, uh, is perhaps the most succinct and powerful expression of the American creed and the meaning of this nation. Lincoln turns what was a self-evident truth, as stated in the Declaration of Independence, to a proposition to which the founders were dedicated. Um, and that means that equality was not somehow assumed, but was a goal, uh, not necessarily equality of results, but an equality under the law, an equality of opportunity. And Lincoln enunciates in that speech the, as it were, baptismal statement for the refounding of the nation born through blood in the Civil War and puts at the end of what it is uh, that uh, this country now in the future is dedicated to. Um, that, um, and and one, should, uh, one should simply uh, read him at the end where he, in a way, states, states for us the meaning of the war and what we, the living, not only in his time, but uh, for generations ahead, 
should be dedicated to. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Lincoln adds at the end, not only the principle of natural rights, but also of democratic self-government, of a people to rule itself, devoted to freedom and equality. Um, Those principles are ours by inheritance. Those principles are ours to defend and preserve. And freedom and equality, along with justice and, and, and holiness given us by the religious traditions, along with the pursuit of wisdom, nobility, and beauty given us by the Greeks. Those things are all crucial, it seems to me, to a worthy life, all still um, needing, all still possibilities in modern times, precarious perhaps more than ever, but in need of and worthy of getting a strong, articulate intellectual defense. That's what I've hoped to contribute to in a small way. The name of the book is Leading a Worthy Life, Finding Meeting in Modern Times, and we've been speaking with its author, Leon Cass. Leon, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. And thank you very much for having me on. I I enjoyed it. For more from Encounter Books, visit us at EncounterBooks.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Intro and outro courtesy of Kurt Viles Freeway.